Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Hurricane Dorian's near miss of Puerto Rico was a relief. The reactions of Puerto Ricans was interesting. In a story on Vice, a 21-year-old retail worker said, We're making community plans. We're not waiting for anyone to help us after the storm hits. We've already seen how that works. No one comes. We're going to talk about what we've learned about relief situations with Rob Moore, director of the Water and Climate Team with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Good to see you again, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jerome. Uh, That person reacting in Puerto Rico, it seems like that's the natural reaction you would have. Yeah, I think um, people that have been exposed to traumatic situations, which Hurricane Maria certainly was two years ago, I think it could be actually a kind of a positive way to react. Like, you know, we, we, need to, we need to strengthen our own community ties. It's an incomplete solution. It's necessary. It's essential that that happen. But locally led solutions and strengthening community are one of the most important factors for people and communities to make it through something like that. Uh, There are some lessons to be learned about ways that we've done this before, and everyone has been kicking around uh, how what happened after Hurricane Maria and how well or poorly the United States reacted to that. Um, How do you you draw the lessons here? I mean, what what kind of things do we need to tick off and remember as we move forward with other disaster relief situations? Yeah, I think one of the big things that came out of Hurricane Maria – is first off, just looking at kind of government capacity, FEMA actually published a very enlightening after-action report last year looking back at the 2017 disaster season, which included Hurricanes Harvey, Hurricane Irma, and Hurricane Maria, as well as Hurricane Nate. Everybody forgets about Nate, poor Nate, as well as the California wildfire season in 2017. FEMA plans to be able to respond to what they call two level one disasters simultaneously in any given year. And that was a year where they were actually responding to five level one disasters, each of which by their planning doctrine requires the deployment of 6,000 FEMA staff to each location. Well, they don't have that many people. They can do two. They can't do five. And part of that doctrine at FEMA is driven by our past experience. It is exceedingly rare that two such events would occur in any given year. And that is no longer a safe assumption. Climate change has made it far more likely that we will see multiple events occur in a given year and that some locations in the United States may experience a traumatic, catastrophic level event multiple years in a row. And we've seen that in very, a uh, very large number of places in the United States. Yeah, but I mean, Puerto Rico is not the only example. The hurricane's moving on to Florida. And we be the third the wild uh, hurricane to hit Florida in three years after going multiple years without a major hurricane encounter, uh, encountering Florida at all. So... Yeah, Florida had Hurricane Irma in 2017, Hurricane Michael in 2018, and now Hurricane Doria is making its way for landfall on Labor Day. California, similarly, major wildfire season in 2017, major wildfire season last year, all setting uh, records that you do not want to see set. Houston, Texas is another good example. I mean, in that in that town, Hurricane Harvey is a an event – of historic proportions. But for people that live there, 
they also experienced 500-year flood events in 2016 and 2015. Harvey was just the latest catastrophe. And I could go on and on. North Carolina, Hurricane Matthew in 2016, Hurricane Florence uh, in 2018. I mean, it used to be there would be years between such events. So recovery could could take place at a pace that was helpful. And now government, you cannot allocate for everything. It's exceedingly difficult. Uh, and right now, we've seen the Trump administration, uh, they diverted uh, quite a bit of FEMA money uh, recently to uh, immigration issues. Uh, and this was emergency relief money. Uh, I, so they're really in a pickle. Yeah, FEMA has found itself understaffed this year already. Um, and now, uh, yeah, the the president has decided to swipe $155 million from the Disaster Relief Fund. This is the fund that's specifically set aside by Congress to provide assistance in the aftermath of a natural disaster. And now, uh, right at the beginning of hurricane season, we are diverting funds towards crises of our president's own making, in my opinion. But Yeah, it's almost like a psychological game, though. The disaster isn't a sure thing. So it seems like, uh, well, we could take some money from there and get away with it because we because there's so many other things in the budget that are sure things. And this one seems like it's not a sure thing. But as we've been talking about, it is a sure thing. These things are happening it's, repeatedly. It's increasingly a sure thing. And that's why Congress, I believe in eight of the last 10 years, has had to make special appropriations for disasters uh, above and beyond uh, what FEMA is able to provide through the Disaster Relief Fund. So it's it's becoming um, a an all too regular practice uh, to do these special appropriations. What that means is that we are not planning ahead and recognizing that we are at much greater risk of these events occurring, number one. Um, So we need to account for that in our policies. We need to account for that in our budgeting, government budgeting. And communities need to account for that in the decisions they make about where to build, what to build, and how to build. You know, are we building something in a place that is exposed to a disaster that's entirely foreseeable based on what we know today. Um, Those are all things that contribute to a storm becoming a disaster. Um, It's what we – it's the decisions we make that turn it into a disaster, unfortunately. I'm talking with Rob Moore, director of the Water and Climate Team with the Natural Resources Defense Council and talking about disaster preparedness. Well, if we do really start taking those things into consideration, does that make all coastal areas <laughs> off limits? You, you you wouldn't build in a really coastal place if you – where there is weather. It seems like that is everywhere. Well, I think to continue building in areas that we can foresee are vulnerable uh, and more vulnerable by the day to events like sea level rise is certainly folly. Um, We do have to grapple with the fact that we've already built a considerable amount of uh, infrastructure, uh, housing, 
a lot of our population lives in coastal areas already. So we are going to grapple in the future with how do we address that situation? Are we going to build a seawall that goes from Brownsville, Texas to the northern tip of Maine? Highly unlikely. Uh, are we going to build seawalls in certain places? Yes. I think it's safe to assume we will do something like that around Manhattan. Um, we will probably do something like that around Washington, D.C. or something similar. But we're not going to do it everywhere. So what are we going to do in those other places? And that's why there's going to be um, a lot of choices to make about where are we going to defend and where are we going to decide to help people move towards something different. Um, and that might mean moving away from the coastlines. Um, and that's just for sea level rise. Uh, if you look at some of the disasters that have befallen the U.S. in the last couple of years, Har Harvey's a great example, actually. Flo Florence last year in North Carolina, also a great example. The damage was not really focused along our coastlines. You know, we typically think of hurricanes um, causing damage from storm surge and high winds. And uh, most of the damage occurred from torrential rains that fell miles and miles and miles inland. Um, far from the coastline. So these extreme events uh, are affecting inland areas um, as much as they are coastal areas. And flooding in the Midwest of this year is a perfect example. I mean, there are areas of uh, the Midwest that have been at flood stage for going on six months now, if not more. Wow. And uh <laughs> okay. Uh, and the, it seemed like the Midwest wasn't ready for that. Well, there are certain parts of the Midwest that have been challenged for sure, as anybody as anybody would. Um, each state takes a different approach to how it prepares for these types of disasters and the policies that guide its decisions for developing in the floodplain. And in Illinois, which – has, ha, its rivers have been at flood stage as long or almost as long as a state like, say, Missouri this year. You've seen far less damage in Illinois than you've seen in Missouri. Why uh, is that? Part of that is because the state of Illinois takes a much more proactive role in how it manages its floodplains. It's done a lot to encourage communities to adopt stronger building codes where maybe Missouri has not. It has a lot of states that are voluntary enroll, voluntarily enrolled in a program where they are um, rewarded with lower flood insurance costs for taking steps like uh, having uh, better building inspections, having better building codes, having better zoning ordinances, having more protective standards in place for construction. That Missouri has far fewer communities that participate in that. Uh, if you look in Illinois, another another statistic I like to cite, we have a lot fewer properties that have been built in the floodplains since we started mapping them than Missouri does. Um, they allow apparently a lot more development to take place in areas that we have a reasonably good knowledge that are quite vulnerable to flooding. So, you know, th those that that's kind of a um, – you can see just in that comparison, one state has – far fewer um, vulnerabilities than another. Is there somebody you consider the gold standard of preparedness? You know, it's, it's, I think it's hard 
to assign that because there are so many variables uh, involved involved in what preparedness is. Uh, I think there are great examples of things that states are doing um, across the board. Um, Illinois, I think, would be a good inland state to look at for what it's doing on floodplain management. You could look at a state like North Carolina, which um, earns a lot of chuckles because of its position on its legislature uh, making it illegal, and I'll put air quotes around that, uh, to talk about sea level rise. Yet that state's emergency management agency has compiled more data and makes decisions based on that data um, than really any other state. They have detailed information uh, and able to do uh, that enables them to do uh, high-resolution wildfire risk um, evaluations, flood evaluations. They have detailed information, uh, much more detailed information on even elevation data that allows them to project flood risk. Um, so they, they actually have a wealth of information that other states have not invested in. Um, so there's, there's things that different states do very well and there's things that different states do very poorly. Uh, what do you think uh, is advisable for policymakers these days? I mean, obviously, they've got to do a lot. They've got to have a lot more foresight, and they've got to have a you know a, a vision that is long term. And it's, it seems like policymakers have such a hard time with long term vision. It is uh, it is a political animal to have short term vision is your next thing. Yeah, it's it's difficult to get policymakers to think beyond their next electoral cycle. Um, that's a that's an ongoing problem in so many areas of public policy. But it's particularly acute in disaster policy and what I would call climate adaptation or climate resilience policy. Um, we know what uh, that our future looks very different than our past, uh, and we have got to do things very differently in order to prepare for that. Um, so how do you overcome this tendency to for, for short-term thinking when the long-term is really important right now? And it's, it's so interesting that there's groups like Extinction Rebellion and the children who are protesting, and they're demanding a long-term kind of attitude Absolutely. towards a crisis. And, w- and they, well, they, they that, should. That, they they are the, going uh, to be the adults, literally the adults in the room that get handed this problem in 20 to 30 years. Uh, we are on the we at, at one degree warming. Uh, one one degree warming as a result of climate change. We are seeing with all too much clarity exactly how the world is responding. Uh, one point five degrees, which is the very ambitious goal of the Paris Accords, does not look better than one degree, um, and two degrees uh, looks even more uh, scary, much less. Uh, anything beyond that. So how do, we, how do we start to get ahead of these problems? Well, one of the first things we need to do is, is recognize the situation we're in and start planning and budgeting accordingly. The United States spends far more on responding disasters than it does on preparing for disasters and avoiding disasters. You know, we spend very little, relatively speaking, on how do we help people and communities plan for and develop uh, in ways that puts them less at risk. 
That is starting to change a little bit. HUD just this week finally announced that it's making $6.8 billion available to, I believe, nine states and five local jurisdictions. That's specifically for disaster mitigation and climate resilience, one of the biggest investments uh, the U.S. government's ever made in that particular uh, arena. Um, that's great. However, we spent $120 billion on disaster recovery in 2017 alone. Yeah. And most of that money is going to rebuild in the same vulnerable places and replicate vulnerabilities that were just exposed. So we, we need to get ahead of that. We need to recognize the, the benefit of, of making things safer uh, before they get knocked down. Then we need we need to also arm people with better information. It's shocking. Um, it's shocking uh, as someone who works predominantly in the arenas of flood risk and sea level rise. Um, how we deny people basic information about the risks they face in twenty one states in the U.S. A buyer or a renter of property is not allowed to know that property's flood history. You're not allowed to know. That's crazy. If your home that you're getting ready to purchase has flooded before. Um, nine other states have what I would, what NRDC would um, rate as inadequate levels of disclosure, where it's exceedingly difficult uh, to learn anything or much of anything. You combine that with the fact that FEMA's flood maps are often years, if not decades, out of date. And even when they are up to date, they say nothing about future flood risk. They don't – They, uh, I like to joke they don't believe in climate change because they don't say anything about future sea level rise. They don't say anything about the potential for future extreme weather events. Um, they're based entirely on historical experience and historical data. Wow. So, so those aren't a very good <laughs> source of information. Yeah. Um, and FEMA itself is prohibited um, by its interpretation of certain laws like the Privacy Act from giving people information that it has about flood risk. So if you're a homeowner and you don't currently buy insurance, flood insurance from FEMA, you might think to yourself, you know what I should do? I should call FEMA and ask if this house is ever flooded because they know. Uh, because if anybody had flood insurance, they paid a claim out. So they'll they'll tell me. They surely want me to know that. Well, FEMA will tell you we can't tell you that. Uh, we're barred from giving you that information until you purchase flood insurance. Then we'll tell you the whole sordid history of your <laughs> Thanks home. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and often people don't get that information until after they file their first damage claim, which is not a really useful time to find out your home has a long, illustrious history of flooding that predates your ownership of the property. So these are all things that just – you know, we give people bad information and then act surprised that they make bad decisions as a result. Um, so these are all correctable problems, though. And in fact, I'm, I'm very pleased that there's a lot of bipartisan support in Congress for fixing some of those things that I just mentioned, including disclosure and better information from FEMA. So those are something. Those are some of the low-hanging fruit that we should be able to to resolve. I hope. Rob Moore is director of the Water and Climate Team with the Natural Resources Defense Council. We'll keep our eye on what's happening with disasters and keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for having me on the show, Jerome.
Coming up after the break, we'll discuss the importance of getting Sudan off the U.S.'s state sponsor of terrorism list. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Sudan's new prime minister is mulling over cabinet choices and the long list of things he'll have to accomplish to get the country back on its feet again. Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdouk is a respected economist and former U.N. official. His transition government is a huge achievement for the protest movement that started last December and overthrew Sudan's longtime ruler, Omar al-Bashir. Let's talk about the immediate challenges Hamdouk faces in Sudan. With me is Amal Hassan Fadlala. She's an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan and author of a book on Sudan called Branding Humanity, Competing Narratives of Right rights, violence, and global citizenship. Good to talk with you again, Amal. Thank you for having me, Jerome. One of the things that uh, Sudan has to do is has to do with the U.S. Um, the need to borrow money is out there, and Sudan would have to get off the state sponsor of terrorism list in the United States to do that, and that is a pretty fishy thing to do. How, is, 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 that an, is that a doable accomplishment? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, the prime minister, of course, is facing a lot of challenges. Uh, he uh, is uh, definitely inheriting, uh, you know, a, dif- a difficult situation here, um, including, you know, uh, uh, collapsing economy, including, you know, having Sudan in uh, the, you know, terror list, including, you know, a huge debt uh, to international lenders, uh, huge uh, inflation rates. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, definitely, um, you know, a difficult situation, but um, coming with the experiences uh, that he has, uh, there is hope that he can have like a good BR, he can have, you know, a good recovery program in the short run. It's so far, the United States hasn't exactly said it would take the take Sudan off the uh, state sponsor of terrorism list the US has played a constructive role they've been they've said a lot of good things about what's happening but so far I, I haven't seen anything about that yes I mean uh, it's this has been um, as you know I mean uh, has been on the table for a long time I mean Bashir regime was uh, sanctioned. Bashir was also, uh, you know, was wanted uh, by the ICC. Um, so the stick of, you know, lifting Sudan from the list of terrorist countries is still there. And what I hear is that um, if they don't see clear path to democracy and transformation, that will not will not happen. So it's uh, still there on the table. Uh, You mentioned the uh, gigantic economic problem that uh, Sudan has with debt, and there's like $50 billion in debt. It's more than 60% of gross domestic product, and debt relief is something um, that is a hard thing to negotiate. Uh, The new prime minister is a well-placed person to negotiate it, but that's got to happen in a hurry to get things moving in the economy again. Yes, I mean, um, uh, one of the things that people are talking about is uh, is the international community also going to chip in and help. Uh, 
in this process because without, you know, some debt relief, I mean, uh, it would be like a really hard um, thing to do for the prime minister. I mean, he he's not, of course, you know, painting a rosy picture about this. He knows the challenges, but he has a lot of hope that, you know, he can negotiate some deals and he can also, you know, gear the economy towards, um, you know, uh, production more than consumption and kind of revive the agricultural sector and kind of do some work on the public sector. I mean, it needs a lot of uh, a lot of work, but people are, you know, they're having a lot of hope about it. One of the things that I was reading was about the defense budget in Sudan, and it is half of all government spending, and the new prime minister says he wants to cut that. Obviously, the military is still in power and won't be crazy about deep cuts to the military budget, but is that something that's just got to happen? Exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, the whole issue with um, Bashir regime is like how it invested in security and left everything else like, you know, at the margin. Uh, so because uh, the, you know, the way that Bashir dealt with uh, Sudan's problem, uh, problems and the problem with his uh, his opponents is through war. So now, you know, with this transition, people are saying without peace, there is no resolving of economic issues. So they are going to, um, you know, reserve the first six months to peace negotiation. And actually, yesterday, I also read that, you know, there are talks now with the uh, armed movements so that they can bring them to this uh, you know, um, democratic transition. And when we talk about wars uh, in Sudan, we're talking about Darfur, South Kordofan, and Blue Nile. There, there's three. Yes, yes. And when we talk about that, we also have to remember that, you know, these movements are not unified among themselves. So the Darfur movement you know, broke into different factions. The SBL, uh, uh, S, uh, you know, Sudan Liberation Movement that was fighting the South Sudan, uh, you know, for South Sudan was also split now. So there is um, the Blue Nile faction, there is the Nuba Mountain faction, and of course the other went with the South. Uh, you, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the military that um, brings the mind into focus is that the two main foreign exchange earners in Sudan have been troop deployments in Yemen in support of Saudi Arabia's effort in Yemen. And the other one is gold exports, which is something the the military government is – the military is highly involved in and there's um, a lot of uh, accusations of corruption in this area. Uh, changing that equation sound, sounds pretty treacherous for a new government. It is, it is. And the, the marriage between the civilian or the civilian faction and the military faction is also something new to Sudan. So people are saying, you know, uh, is this uh, going to hold on for a long time? And uh, especially now, there is also investigation that have to be done. So it's go we will see lots of tensions, we will see lots of, um, you know, kind of uh, attempt to um, correct things. But would it would it really um, you know serve the end of this um, transformation or not? I think the future will tell. And the accountability aspect you're uh, referring to is probably really high in the in the minds of a lot of Sudanese 
uh, when the you know the government, the military was shooting people in the streets, that's uh, something that uh, the protesters want accountability for. And they say when they're saying things like the military is you know addicted to shooting people in the streets, they want to end that addiction. They they want to see some kind of thing happen where military people get prosecuted and the guy who signed the the deal for the transition government would seem to be the first in line. Yeah, and and, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's really a a very kind of, uh, as you're saying, a very difficult route to take. That's why a lot of protesters actually were not happy about this marriage between the civilian and the military. And they were willing to just, you know, continue to revolt until they have like a civilian government. But I think at the end, uh, given the history of Sudan and the history of the military in Sudan, this was the best deal to, uh, you know, arrive at. Because, uh, you know, they say, well, you know, maybe they can uh, figure some stuff uh, out uh, within this transitional uh, period. So, We'll see. I mean, uh, frankly, it's a challenge, uh, but we'll see if the civilian can civilize the the military or who knows. Is there something outside people and countries can do to help? It it seems like there's a lot on the table there. Yes. I mean, um, uh, as I said, I mean, people are very, I mean, they think this is a fragile uh, coalition, but a lot of people also think it is going to hold on because the protesters are keeping an eye on the revolution. Um, there is, um, you know, regional and international actors who are invested in this and interested in it. And I think uh, it might be a success for them to kind of support this process. Uh, so, yes, um, uh, all of these are, are possible. Even the Gulf states are now coming and saying, you know, they would support this um, transnational uh, transitional um, um, period. And they're traditional supporters of the military. Yes, yes. So uh, I think um, the military, uh, people are saying Sudan is going through a very tough transition. Uh, there is still war. There is still peace negotiation and having security and having the military is key. So this is their argument. Um, so uh, I think, um, you know, if the armed movements, uh, if the leaders did not accept to join the negotiation, there, there will be a problem. Uh, did, is there any um, key thing that you think regional actors should be on the lookout for? Is there a sign of uh, danger or problems that would uh, pop up here? Well, um, I think people are worried about, uh, you know, uh, situations of, um, you know, any kind of chaotic situation. Uh, But it seems to me now uh, with this, uh, you know, with the formation of the Supreme Council, and now the prime minister is supposed to announce the cabinet of minister any time, it seems to me that there is hope that there is going to be stability. Uh, And if, you know, the international actors and regional actors can stick to their plan that they will support this, uh, you know, this uh, process, there will be no fear. But uh, again, I mean, what I sense from the street, again, is a lot of mistrust, a a lot of anxiety. And I think it's normal and healthy, but um, I don't see any kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, signs of, um, uh, you know, disillusion of this or, you know, fragmentation of this um, alliance. 
Amal Hassan Fadwala is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. She's author of a book on Sudan called Branding Humanity, Competing Narratives of Rights, Violence, and Global Citizenship. And we were talking about some of the challenges facing the new prime minister in Sudan, Abdallah Hamdouk, a respected economist who is now uh, head of the transition government in in, uh, Sudan. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's great to speak to you. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we will dip into our deep worldview archives and we will hear a 2005 interview about the social impact of Walmart in the United States. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldviews brought you human stories from at home and abroad. We wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. Back in 2005, there were about 80 radio stations in the Chicago market. A study of Chicago radio listeners found that the ones who tune into this radio station, WBEZ, are the least likely to shop at Walmart. 51% of WBEZ listeners in 2005 said that they'd shopped at Walmart. We wondered if that's good for America, so I decided to talk with labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein from the University of California, Santa Barbara. I began by asking how Walmart dictates social policy. There's a vacuum of what would have been federal policy. That is, um, take the minimum wage, for example. Minimum wage hasn't been raised for, I think, now we're pushing seven years. So there's virtually no place in the country that actually pays the minimum wage. It's uh, officially five fifteen an hour in mo- many states, most states. And uh, the minimum wage is in real terms now at its lowest level in, in 40 years. So in absence of that, the largest uh, employer in an area really sets the minimum wage, and Walmart does that. It's the entry-level wage for Walmart employees, which is, depends on the area, but it's somewhere between 7 and $8 an hour. So they're doing a lot better than minimum wage. Well, no, but here's the thing. The minimum wage doesn't exist anymore. The minimum wage is sort of uh, kaput. If the minimum wage were at the same relative level as it had been in either 1968 or even 1978, it would be somewhere around $8 an hour, or even actually $9 an hour if it were at the what its apogee was in the late 1960s. So in the absence of that, Walmart is establishing the real minimum wage. So I think this is also true, by the way, of health benefits. When a company like Walmart establishes a health benefits standard, then its competitors not just the retail trade, but in all the sort of the uh, service sector industry. They said, well, look, if we want to compete, then we have to uh, meet that standard. So there's this general erosion in, uh, in, in health care benefits, certainly in the, in the service sector. And to be uh, more specific about Walmart's health care benefits, a little less than half have some kind of health care benefits offered them? Right. Well, Walmart, yeah, Walmart, of course, offers it to everybody, but it's very difficult for someone to actually find it sort of economically rational to take it. First of all, if you're part-time, and there's still uh, 30% of the workers are part-time, you have to wait two years before you qualify. So most part-time workers have long since left before that, so they don't get it. Then um, it has a, a very high deductibles, and the cost for a family is, is quite high per month 
the individual it's low, but for a family, which is what you need, it's quite high. So only 50% of all Walmart workers, and now this includes with management and those who've been there for a long time, there's always a certain number of those, only 50% of all of them take the health care benefit from Walmart directly. Now, Walmart then claims, makes the argument, that 90% of all of our workers have some sort of health benefit, either from the government or from a spouse or uh, some other system. But, well, that's sort of saying, they say, well, we're sort of freeloading on other parts of the economy. I mean, that's what they're saying. You make the comparison to, for, with Walmart and General Motors in its heyday. Um, mm-hmm. One is a retail giant. Mm-hmm. One was a big, is a big car manufacturer. Right. What, uh, how do you make the comparison? Right. Apples and oranges, you'll say, and, and Walmart says that. It's apples and oranges. Two things. First of all, the obvious similarity is that both the biggest companies in the country in terms of number of employees and in terms of, of sales. So they're big. But that isn't the main, the main reason I make the comparison. They were both the, the companies that set the standards. Uh, you know, famously, uh, Charles Wilson once said, 1953 it was, actually, he said, uh, what's good for the country is good for General Motors and vice versa. Now, everyone got very upset about that because it seemed a certain sense of hubris. Uh, but there was a certain truth to that in the sense that the General Motors then, especially in its collective bargaining relationship with the UAW, did set standards for blue-collar workers around the country. Walmart kind of says the same thing. They say, look, we are doing good things for the country. We are, we are saving consumers a lot of money, so you should be boosting us rather than denigrating us. But it's not just that Walmart is setting a certain kind of, I think, lower standard. It's also that Walmart and General Motors are much more similar than would seem to be the case at first glance. Walmart is becoming a de facto manufacturing corporation. That is, today, sort of the most important economic uh, function in the economy is the retail distribution function. Walmart uh, determines the price and often the wages and the working conditions and the place in which its suppliers will manufacture everything from soap and toothpaste to... um, you know, to lawnmowers. Uh, it's famous for that. That's, it prides itself on that. It's one of the reasons it's so efficient. And so it's not that the, the retail is some uh, uh, very different um, industry than, than car manufacturing. In fact, both are central to the economy in their heyday. And Walmart, in fact, is becoming the de facto manufacturer. And so you categorize Walmart as something of a manufacturer, even though a whole lot of their manufacturing goes on in China. Well, of course, but it's like any big firm. Yes, of course. They, in fact, have uh, either formally or informally encouraged that. The supply chain, though, from China to Bentonville and to every other Walmart store in the country is a highly integrated, highly continuous one in which Walmart knows precisely what's going on in every factory in China, where it's producing the goods that it sells. So, I mean, there's a kind of direct link, much more intimate and connected, that even General Motors in its heyday had with its many its suppliers or its many car dealerships. So when, when the president of Walmart has made the argument, said, this is a terrible comparison. General Motors is manufacturing, we're retail. Retail's always been low wage. But my point is, and that of many other uh, historians and economists, is that today retail is the dog that wags the manufacturing tail. That's for the first time true in over 100 years, but it's unquestionably true. And I just returned from Bentonville, where you can see it physically, where all these suppliers, all these vendors are establishing offices in this one once remote Arkansas town. Why? Because they have to sort of pay homage, as it were, to Walmart. 
So in a way, Walmart is setting uh, social standards in China and places where it uh, manufactures? Of course, yes. It's the largest importer from China. Uh, if it were an independent country, it would be the eighth largest country. Uh, it imports already more than Great Britain and, and Russia. And so even, even in China, it is establishing the de facto standard in terms of manufacturing wages and conditions, et cetera, et cetera. You're listening to Worldview from Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Nelson Lichtenstein. He's professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and we're talking about Walmart's model for the global economy. If they're setting a social standard in China, does the Chinese government have something to say about it? Does the Chinese government say, well, we'd like you to pay X amount or we think uh, certain labor standards are, are different or, or we deliver health care to our, our, our labor manufacturers? Uh, what happens there? Well, the Chinese government, of course, is an authoritarian regime, which is uh, now its policy is to uh, encourage uh, industrialization uh, at whatever cost, and it's doing that. Um, in fact, it now breaks strikes and arrests um, those who seek to raise labor standards rather than anything else. It may in the future play a kind of game here in which it, uh, fearful of a, of a really eruption in all the new industrialized districts of South China, it's possible that it's, it's seeking to legitimize the Chinese Labor Federation, and, and, and for that reason... It insisted that Walmart recognize the Labor Federation, but but really, the, the, as we speak, the policy of the Chinese government is to repress any uh, efforts by the workers themselves to uh, raise wages, have better conditions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was a, apparently there was a strike just last week of ten thousand uh, workers in a, in a Japanese-owned factory, of which most of the product went to Walmart, and this was repressed very rapidly. How does Walmart justify this? Um, do they say, well, you know, we are delivering low prices and we are the people who are good for the economy. We're keeping inflation down. There's a lot of things, a lot of benefits that people like about us. We've got the right model. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they make the argument. And so far as it goes, it's a good argument. They save American consumers $100 billion a year in, in lower costs, and that may well be true. And I am in favor of lower costs. I have no objection. I'm in favor, actually, of even big box stores. I think they are an efficient way of getting product to people. But historically, going back over 100 years, in the United States, low prices and high wages have always been the key to the American century, to the miracle of the United States, to the American dream. Both have been the case. You could begin with Henry Ford, but even more important is Edward Filene of Filene's Department Store, who in the early 20th century, you know, he created the famous Filene's Basement. Well, there were low wages there, but he was also an advocate of organized labor. He helped write the Wagner Act. And the idea that the American uh, uh, consumer uh, is also an American worker, they're the same, one and the same uh, person, and that you need both high wages and low prices. And in fact, the two go together because... High wages are always an incentive for the uh, employer to create labor-saving devices, and that's one reason we have high productivity in the United States. Well, why did uh, Walmart throw that philosophy out the window? I mean, did Sam Walton do this on day one when he was working in Arkansas and say, you know, we're going to pay as little as humanly possible? Well, he did, actually. And, in fact, he broke the law. Uh, Walton paid below the minimum wage in an illegal fashion in this very early, early days, and he was caught doing it and had to pay fines. But um, here's the reason. This is one of the put it in the uh, rather old-fashioned term, one of the contradictions of capitalism, as it were. Every capitalist, every employer wants his workers to get as little as possible and his 
rivals workers to have as much as possible because then, then they will buy his product. So it's a kind of a contradiction there. So if GM could pay less and have Ford pay more, then maybe uh, those Ford workers could afford to, to buy GM cars or something of that sort. It's also a, a part of the origins of Walmart. It did come from rural Arkansas. And, um, you know, it's not that rural Arkansas, Arkansasians are, are, uh, have a particular point of view. It's just that the, neither the New Deal nor the civil rights movement had really penetrated these rural areas of the of the South, and therefore the labor standards and the working condition standards and the expectation of, say, trade unionism back in the 60s and 70s when the firm really got rolling just wasn't there. And what the Walmart did was to take that standard, that rural southern standard, and then move it into other areas of the country. Now, they're no longer a rural southern company. They're an extremely sophisticated uh, organization, and uh, for which, actually, I have a great deal of respect in, in, a, in a certain sense. But they've just taken those standards and and tried to make them national, which is why we have these big fights now in California and New York and Chicago, where you have at least the remnants of the New Deal, the remnants of the trade union movement are resisting their destruction. Is this something that's an inevitable fight with Walmart? Um, If their standards are are lower than what would seem to be normal, people are going to fight them and get them to raise the standards. And this has happened in industries throughout uh, the history of capitalism. And that's just uh, the way it goes. Now people are fighting Walmart. They're going to get them to raise their standards. There is a kind of fight there, almost almost an inevitable fight. The outcome of it is not assured. The outcome may be that Walmart may well win, and there'll be the general erosion of uh, wage standards in the in the retail and, and grocery industry in particular, which is highly unionized uh, around the country. And that could easily happen, and we will end up with, um, uh, in effect, the the Walmart or Seven Eleven standard will be what all people in retail and grocery are paid. That's just the the name of the game. Um, so no, it's not inevitable that the standards will go up, but the the conflict is, I think, is is quite inevitable or or seems difficult to um, avoid. But that's what we're facing, and that's why um, uh, lots of industries, by the way, uh, which were once high-paying, become very low-paying, and that's just a new standard. Meat processing. Chicago used to be the great center of uh, of the packing houses. These were high-wage jobs in the period after unionization. They were paid almost as much as steel workers, and now uh, all those jobs have fled to a rural um, Midwest, and they employ uh, illegal immigrants at minimum wage, almost minimum wage, and they're terrible jobs. So you can have a erosion of a job standard, which was once very good, and I think that's happening now in the unionized grocery stores all around the country under the the threat of the of Walmart's competition. Well, what role does government play? Sometimes there are governments, uh, or local governments, who are saying, you know what, we should change our city laws and we should have, uh, you know, minimums for uh, health care and uh, wages, and uh, we're going to pick up the slack here. If the federal government's not going to do it, we'll do it ourselves. And, and are they playing some kind of role? Well, yeah, that's what's happening in America today. The in the in the absence of a, of a federal government, uh, local institutions are trying to do it. In, in a sense, it's a return to the to the era of, of the progressive era a hundred years ago when federal laws did not exist, but you had uh, you know progressive cities like Portland, Oregon, or New York City, or, or Chicago, for that matter. And that was sort of the seedbed of, of progressive era New Deal reform. So that's what's happening again today. And the various cities, including Los Angeles, for example, which passed an ordinance that said whenever a, a large uh, a big box store comes in, you have to do an economic impact statement. And so they're trying to provide the regulatory environment 
which we can sort of live with with this new uh, retail phenomena. I mean, in in a sense, the regulation of of capitalism, the regulation of business, has been a an apple pie American tradition since at least the 1890s. But now, it, the cities, uh, some of the cities at least, are the carrying on that tradition. Um, it's not as if this is some sort of new um, new phenomena. It's very much baked into the into the American political economy, and it's been eroded in the last 30 years, but you know, a city like L.A. or Chicago is carrying on that tradition. That was Nelson Lichtenstein, a labor historian at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I spoke to him in 2005. Since then, the minimum wage was raised from $5.15 an hour to $7.25 an hour in 2009, where it's remained ever since. After the Trump administration passed its landmark tax bill last year, Walmart raised its minimum wage to $11 an hour. Adjusted for inflation, that's about the same Walmart paid its employees when this interview aired back in 2005. The Affordable Care Act means that Walmart has to insure more of its employees. But the number of part-time employees is up, too. They get limited benefits. Walmart is also negotiating directly with health care providers and insurers to reduce their costs. Like in 2005, Walmart is still the biggest importer from China to the U.S. Between now and the fall, we'll bring you more stories like this from our 25-year run here on Worldview. The Camino de Santiago is a 500-mile pilgrimage that people walk in Spain. It's been happening since the 9th century. Theater Y is a new play that is based on this pilgrimage, and they've pared it down to a simple six-hour outdoor experience that ends with a meal. So we'll talk about the Camino Project, this theater piece from Theater Y, tomorrow on Worldview on our Weekend Passport segment. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.